Welcome to The Leader's Notebook with Dr. Mark Rutland. Dr. Rutland is a world-renowned leadership expert. He is a New York Times best-selling author, and he has served as the president of two universities. The Leader's Notebook is brought to you by Global Servants. For more information about Global Servants, please visit our website, globalservants.org. Here is your host, Dr. Mark Rutland. If you have your Bibles, if you'll take those and turn, if you will, to 1 Kings, I'm going to be reading from there in just a few moments. I'm, uh, I'm going to begin a series now, and I do a series at Free Chapel. It's just hither and yon. I don't, I'm not going to have 16 straight weeks or something. So it'll be a series, but each because they're not back to back to back to back, they'll, each one will have to be completely freestanding. So it won't, it won't damage you if you, if this is the only one you hear, if you miss one or miss two or miss three, whatever. Each one will be freestanding. But the concept of the series is this. Title I'm calling it is of kings and prophets. There is an ongoing tension in scripture and in, and in history between secular power and spiritual authority. And, and how that works either as conflict or in partnership. And, and there are just prophets and kings that clash throughout the whole Bible. Not just in the Old Testament, by the way, even into the New Testament. So I'll be exploring various of those tensions or friendships. Sometimes they were close relationships. Sometimes they were prophets were listened to and advised by kings. Sometimes they were opposed. Sometimes they were brought down and vice versa. There were kings who destroyed prophets. So I'm going to deal with this on this whole series. Uh, tonight, I want to speak on the thriller in Israel. If you have your Bibles, turn to 1 Kings chapter 18. I want to read verses 17 through 19. And it came to pass when Ahab saw Elijah, Ahab, the king of Israel, the northern kingdom, Israel and Judah have split. Judah is the southern kingdom, capital at Jerusalem. The northern kingdom is Israel, the capital at Samaria with the king Ahab. And it came to pass when King Ahab saw Elijah the prophet, that Ahab said unto him, Art thou he that troubleth Israel? And Elijah answered and said, I have not troubled Israel, but thou and thy father's house, in that you have forsaken the commandments of the Lord, and thou hast followed Baalim. Baal, uh, any word in Hebrew that ends with I am, it just means plural. So Baal means lords, Baalim, false lords, false gods. Now therefore send and gather me all Israel unto Mount Carmel, and the prophets of Baal 450 and the prophets of the groves, 400, which eat at Jezebel's table. Jezebel is the Phoenician, the, the Sidonian, Gentile, pagan wife of Ahab. He's Jewish, so it's against the law for him to have her at all. And he has now been brought into idolatry, worshiping idols through the influence of this Sidonian wife named Jezebel. Put your hands on your Bible. And let's pray together as we start. Heavenly Father, I pray that your Holy Spirit will illumine our hearts and minds. Give us a heart of wisdom tonight. Brush aside all of the fatigue of the day, all of the cobwebs, all the concerns and worries, and somehow help us to focus tonight on what you have for us. And I believe you for it in the wonderful name, Jesus. 
the strong son of God. Amen. On March the 8th, 1971, the first of three fights between Joe Frazier and Muhammad Ali happened. At that time, it was the highest paid purse of a heavyweight boxing match in history. Each man got paid two and a half million dollars for one fight. Joe Frazier won on a unanimous decision. January the 28th, 1974, they fought again. It was not quite as big a deal because at that time, neither of them was the champion. So it was a setup fight, setting up for them. Whoever won that was going to have the opportunity to fight for the championship. Muhammad Ali won that. And then in October 1st, 1975, Ali and Frazier fought their final of three huge fights. They fought it in the Philippines and it was called the Thriller in Manila. After it was over, they were so battered that Joe Frazier couldn't even, he was going to come out for the 15th round. They fought 14 horrible rounds, more punches thrown in the Thriller in Manila than any heavyweight fight up to that time. Both men pounding each other. But at the end of the fourth round, when the bell rang for the 15th round, Joe Frazier's trainer would not let him go out because his eyes were both closed from the fighting. And Joe Frazier was showing so much courage, he was going to go out and fight blind just so he could say he finished the fight. They declared Muhammad Ali the winner. He put his hands up as the winner and collapsed to the canvas. Later, he told a sports writer that was the closest thing to dying I know of. They nearly beat each other to death in three fights. The last of these was called the Thrilla in Manila. Tonight's message is the Thrilla in Israel. Because there was an ongoing contest between the prophet Elijah and the king Ahab. They had more than one knockdown drag out. I want to zero in on three of these points of conflict between the great prophet Elijah and this wicked king Ahab. The first really sort of begins here at 1 Kings chapter 18, which we just read in the passage we just read. But there is a lead up to the fight. You know, when fighters are going to fight, they always try to get the purse going bigger. They always try to get the interest going. So they start all this trash talking and then they have the way in. You know, you've seen them shake their fist at each other. And a lot of that is just showmanship. So there was, a, there was always a lead up to the fight. There was a lead up to the, to the conflict at Mount Carmel where Elijah confronted 850 false prophets of Baal and the Sidonian pagan gods of Ahab's wife, Jezebel. The lead up was this. God revealed to Ahab, to, revealed to Elijah to tell Ahab, I'm going to close up the heavens. It's not going to rain. God has told me I have the authority. It's not going to rain until I call for rain. Three years with no rain, not only no rain, not even any dew for three years. 
So Elijah is leading up to the contest on Mount Carmel with a three-year drought, basically at his command. Then he sees uh, King Ahab's assistant. It's a fascinating, we didn't read it tonight for the sake of brevity, but it's a fascinating little moment. Uh, Elijah the prophet sees Ahab's second in command, Obadiah, and he says to him, go and get your master, go get the king and bring him here to me. And this guy says, please don't do this. Please don't send me. I know you. I know how supernatural you are. I know how miraculous you are. I know the hand of God is on you. I'll go get him. I'll tell him you're here. I'll bring him here and you'll be gone and he'll kill me. And Elijah just laughs at me. He says, I'll be waiting right here. You go get him. So he comes and then we have this fascinating thing. Here is the king Ahab who says to the prophet, this evil, wicked, wicked king. And he says to Elijah, are you the one that's troubling this country? Now listen to what I'm going to tell you. Whenever sinners are inconvenienced by righteousness, they will blame the righteous for the trouble. You just have a couple where they're both just out of the way of God, just a married couple, both of them just lost as ball in high weeds. Both of them drinking together, partying together, drugging together, whatever it is. And you just let, you just let the wife get saved. She begins to clean her life up. She begins to live a moral life. She won't get drunk with him anymore. She won't party with him. She won't do drugs anymore. All of the wickedness just goes out of her. She wants to go to church. She wants to hear the word of God preached. She's reading her Bible. It, there is nothing more inconvenient to a sinful man than a righteous woman. And he will say to her, how come you're bringing all this trouble in this household? Art thou he that troubleth this marriage? And Elijah says, I'm not the one troubling this country. You are trouble. You, your household, your father, your family, and your sinful wife. You are the trouble. And he says, now, bring all the prophets of Baal and all the prophets of the lesser gods, the prophets of the groves, sacred groves. Bring them all to Mount Carmel, and we're going to have a contest. I'm not going to go through it in great detail because I think most of you know the story. They made two altars. The priests of Baal made their altar. Elijah made his. They took two bullocks and they slaughtered the bullocks, put the meat up on the altars. And Elijah says, now let's have this contest. Get it all ready and just pray. And whichever God sends fire, let him be God. If Baal can light this, if Baal can light this sacrifice on fire, let him be the God of Israel. If, if Yahweh, if Jehovah God lights it on fire, let him be the God of Israel. 850 to one. And the, the scene is absolutely amazing. 850 prophets. They begin to dance and cry out and all these complicated religious things. And it says, finally, they take lancets, small blades and cut themselves till the blood gushes out on it. Listen to this. A false God demands your blood. The only true God gives you his blood. 
And they're dancing on the altar. And Elijah, this is a tough guy. Elijah all alone, 850 of them. And Elijah begins to mock them. He begins to mock them. He says, be, be a little louder. I think he's just gone to sleep. Be louder. And, and so then he begins to really mock. He says, Baal, Baal, wake up. Your, your, your people over here are bleeding. And then he says, it's not clear in the King James Bible, but it's clear in Hebrew. He says, maybe he's just gone to the bathroom. He says, let's just pound on the bathroom door. He'll come out. And finally, the priests are just exhausted. They say, okay, we couldn't get it. We couldn't do it. But Jehovah can't do it either. Your God's no better. If you can do any better, you do it. Elijah says, I'm not quite ready yet. Bring some water. And they, they pour water on the sacrifice until it soaks the sacrifice. It soaks the wood. It soaks the stones. They have a trench dug that's a bushel deep until the trench all around it is filled with water. The sacrifice is totally soaked. What is Elijah saying? He's saying this is the condition of Israel. Soaked in sin. Soaked in sin. The, prophet, the prophets of Baal are saying, if he ever could have lit it, now he can't light it. Now he can't. Now you've made it impossible. Elijah is making a strong point. Don't you see it? What is impossible under perfect conditions for a false god is entirely doable for the real God under terrible conditions. So sometimes we, sometimes we get so discouraged, read the newspaper, all the hate and the bitterness and the arguing and the sin and the violence and all the rest of it. We just think that maybe there's no hope. Listen to me. Satan always overplays his hand. He always pushes just a little bit too far. He'll push just a little too far. I've seen it so many. I've seen it in individual lives. He'll push a kid into sin. And then he's not content with that. He pushes him into, into violence. He's not content with that. He pushes him into jail. He's not content with that. He pushes him into solitary confinement. And in solitary confinement, somebody slips in the Bible and he believes in Jesus and gets saved. And Satan says, oh, if I just stopped five minutes before. But Satan won't stop. He has no self-control. Self-control is a fruit of the Spirit. And Satan has no access to the fruit of the Spirit. So he just pushes and keeps pushing and keeps pushing until he can actually push an entire nation into revival. So don't worry. Don't worry when it looks like the culture you live in is saturated in sin. That's when the fire falls. Now, this is a powerful contrast. All of this religion, all this showmanship, all the blood and the dancing and screaming and yelling and everything else. Elijah says, soak it. I want you to see what you look like. And then he says this simple prayer. Oh, Lord, let them see that you're God. Send the fire. From out of the sky. Fire, it burns up the sacrifice, it burns up the stones, it burns up the wood, it burns up the water, it leaps into the trench and burns the water like Mexican oil. Just lights it up. And then Elijah says, this is hard for us in our grace-filled, 
modern Protestantism, Elijah says, we need to be rid of this lot. He says, take them down to the Brook Kidron and kill them all. And they wiped those 850 prophets off of the face of the earth. Now listen to this. There are those moments when God will grant you, grant a nation, grant a prophet, grant you in your prayers, that moment of spectacular, miraculous power. The demonstration and manifestation of his witness. Huge anointing. Spectacular results. Elijah gets national revival. The power of the priesthood of Baal is broken temporarily over Israel. And then he says to, to Ahab, now I'm going to show you that God was speaking to me about the rain. He said, you better get in your chariot and ride because pretty soon the road's going to be bogged down in mud and you won't be able to get back. And God sends the rain and Elijah this old prophet, this is a fascinating. I'm always amazed at the things that Hollywood won't make in the movies. Because this is an amazing thing. This, is, this old prophet takes his robe and binds it up like running shorts. And he runs ahead of the king's chariot all the way from Mount Carmel to Samaria, the whole length of the Jezreel Valley. He runs ahead of it. This guy, he's under a blaze of anointing. Now, enter Jezebel. Elijah goes home, uh, Ahab goes home to the palace. And she says, how did things go on Mount Carmel? He says, now, baby, we need to talk. <laughs> say, okay, see, I did not kill any of them personally. She says, kill any of who? He said, now see, I'm trying to explain a situation to you. Men, do you ever, you ever have a situation where you're trying to explain it to your wife and you just can't figure out how you want to take the medicine? <laughs> so you just start talking around things. Okay, see, she said, what happened? Well, see, now, like the sun was coming up. She said, what are you talking about? The sun was, well, see, I'm just, I'm trying to explain it to you. And, and see, like there were birds. And you feel if you will talk long enough, God will give you an answer. So he said, she said, tell me what happened on Mount Carmel. He said, okay. Elijah prayed, fire fell. They took all of your priests, 850 of them, and took them down to the Brook Kidron and killed them all. So she sends a messenger to Elijah. And she says, you killed my priests. The Lord do so unto me if I don't nail your hide to my garage door. I will kill you. I will kill you. The messenger delivers the message. And Elijah, this prophet who has just had this spectacular victory, this miraculous moment, this baptism of fire, this this moment of changing the history and direction of a nation. He gets this note from this woman and he flees all the way from the northern nation of Israel, all the way to the southern tip of the southern nation, all the way to Beersheba down in the desert. 
And then with a prof, with, a, with his assistant, he leaves his assistant there and goes on from there into the wilderness. He is afraid. Who has just seen the outpouring of the miraculous power of God. Fire from heaven. He saw it with his own eyes and he's afraid because of a note from one woman. I hate it when the women laugh at that. He flees all the way to Beersheba. He's hiding out in the wilderness of the Judean desert. He is alone. He's depressed. And to a certain extent, he is allowing himself the emotional luxury of self-pity. God speaks to him and says, I want you to leave this wilderness and go to Mount Horeb. There's a big debate about what Mount Horeb is. Is Mount Horeb just another name for Mount Sinai? It's not clear, but we do know that it is in the Sinai desert. So in other words, God says, you're here in the Judean desert all alone. You want to see a desert? I'll show you a desert. Leave the Judean desert and go to the Sinai Peninsula. Desert. He's alone, finds a cave on the side of Mount Horeb. And God sends a hurricane, a wind. And Elijah's sitting in the mouth of the cave and this wind is roaring around him. But God's not in it. Then there comes fire, but God's not in the fire. And then there comes a still small voice. And the voice says to Elijah, what are you doing here? What's wrong with you? Listen to Elijah's answer. Isn't, doesn't it encourage you when a prophet of God reveals his humanity? Am I the only one? I read things like this and it gives me hope for myself. He says, I'm the only one in the whole country that loves you. Nobody cares about you. I'm the only prophet. I may be the only real Jew. I don't have, I'm all alone. Cave. Wilderness. This woman trying to kill me. This is, this is an important point. This is, this is a man who has just witnessed, just witnessed God seal up heaven at his prayer, send fire from heaven, burn rocks, burn water, answer a prayer a second time and give him such an anointing he can outrun a horse-drawn chariot. Now he's laying up in a cave in the middle of the, of the Sinai Peninsula, feeling sorry for himself. I, uh, I was a pastor of a church that I took over as pastor. They invited me to come and be the pastor. And it was, um, the church was bankrupt. Literally, literally, literally bankrupt. I wasn't even paid there for six months. It was, it was ruined, finished ready to default on a $17.4 million note. It was, it was, it was ruined. There was no money in the bank. The day I walked on the campus, we were 120 days behind the vendors. It was, it was awful. Florida power was ready to turn the lights off. The day I walked in the building, in the auditorium, had a 5,000 seat auditorium and almost no people. I could have shot a shotgun in there and not even hurt anybody. There are actually a lot of Sundays. 
And God, God gave us a miracle. I mean, God gave us a miracle. In, in, in five years, we went from hanging by a thread. We went to the largest Sunday school, Pentecostal Sunday school in the state of Florida, fourth largest Assembly of God church in the nation. It exploded. It was, it was a miracle. <laughs> At the end of, how can I say this to you? It's, I'm just being honest with you. You can get a miracle. I believe in miracles, and you can get a miracle that will just near about kill you. Sometimes, I just need to say, sometimes miracles are not all they're cracked up to be. It was a miracle. And at the end of five years at that church, I was exhausted. I was exhausted, depleted. I had witnessed a miracle and didn't feel like I could go on another day. So I, I told my wife, I said, baby, I, I think I've had it here. She said, I was just waiting for you to say it. So we blessed them and sold their house. And we moved to a little tiny rent house outside of Dallas, Texas. And we holed up for a year. I still traveled and preached and anywhere anybody would have me. And I wrote a book during that period of time. But mostly what we did was kind of hunker down in that little rent house and try to detox. I understand what Elijah's going through here. He's had a miracle that's just nearby killed him. And you know what I experienced in that little house? Self-pity. Self-pity. Lord, trying to preach your word. Not appreciate it. And you know what the Lord came to me and said to me in that little house? What are you crying about? You prayed. You prayed for me to take you to that church. I took you to that church. You prayed for me to give you a miracle. I gave you a miracle. You prayed for me to deal with the financial debt of that. $17.4 million. He said, I gave you a multi-million dollar miracle. You prayed for more people. I gave you more people. I prayed. You prayed for things. Everything you prayed for, I gave you everything. And I said, Lord, I'd left because I was exhausted. He said, that's your humanity. That's your humanity showing. He said, now, I've given you a year. Now, gird up your loins and get back in the ball game." God scolded me. So the second time I came to my wife, I said, baby, we've been here a year. I'm a, I'm a Texan. I was born in Texas. I love, I love the Republic of Texas. I've, I've lived a lot in the United States, but really, I, I love the Republic. And every time a Texan gets hurt, wounded, beat up, discouraged, anything else, we all go back to Texas. God, we're here. Heal us. But at the end of a year... I, again, second time, sat down with my wife and I said, baby, I, I think this phase of our life needs to be over. She said the same thing. I was just waiting for you to say it. I was waiting for you to say it. And I said, Lord, I'm, I'm ready for the next phase. I'm ready for the next chapter. I trust you. I believe you. 
Lord, thank you for this year. Thank you for letting me have this time. But I'm through feeling sorry for myself. I'm through all this weeping and moaning and hunkering down in this little. This probably deeply disappoints some of you. Some of you are saying to yourself, I can't believe Dr. Rutland sitting in that little house, whining and moaning and feeling sorry for himself. Well, let me touch the hem of your garment. Well, I'm, you understand what I'm saying? I'm saying you can be walking in the blessing of God one moment. I mean, just under the blessing of his miraculous power one moment. And the next moment, your humanity can flare up and you can be hiding out in a cave saying, well, she's mad at me. Jezebel trying to kill me. He's just seen God burn this stuff. Why didn't he just say, God, this Jezebel? <laughs> Instead, he holds his note and he says, Oh my God, she's trying to kill me. I got to run for it. Isn't that, aren't we amazing? Aren't we amazing? Can you see yourself in this story? Can you see your, will you see the hand of God one moment and the next moment you're all filled with fear and loneliness and depression and self-pity? So Elijah digs out of it. And then there comes the straw that broke the camel's back. Elijah, uh, Ahab, King Ahab and his wicked wife Jezebel conspire to take a garden away from a man that has a garden close to their palace. He won't sell it to them. So they suborn perjury. They falsely accuse him of blasphemy against God and sedition against the king treason. That man is stoned to death and killed and they go and take possession. And now Elijah has dug out of his self-pity. He's climbed out of the cave. He's come back into Israel and God says, okay, you're ready to get back to work. He said, yes, I am. He said, go and tell Ahab. I know what he's done and he'll die for it. And so the, Elijah comes back to Ahab. This is, this is the thriller. The first two fights are over. This is the third fight. This is the big one. And Ahab says, goes into Naboth's garden where Elijah is. God says he's in the garden. Go right there. And Elijah, the priest says to this king, Oh, now all that fear, all that, everything, that's all gone. Now he's bold. He's back under the anointing. Listen to me. It doesn't have to end in a cave in the wilderness. God can give you back your strength. God can give you back your courage. God can give you back your anointing. And this priest, this, this prophet now restored, refreshed, and newly unctionized, he goes to the king and he says, where they stoned Naboth to death and his blood went in the ground, the dogs will lick your blood right there. And your wife, Jezebel, the dogs will lick her blood too. What a, what boldness. That's a ferocious, that's a lion of God. You know what the problem is? It doesn't happen. Any of it doesn't happen for three years. And then only part of it happens. Three years go by. Don't tell, don't tell me that Elijah didn't say, Lord, did I hear from you? 
Did I hear from you? You told, you told me, am I the only one in the house that has ever thought I had a word from God? I thought I had a word from you, God. I thought, was that you? Was that you? Three years. And then Ahab is wounded in battle. And they try to get him back to the palace and he dies in his chariot. And they take the chariot out behind the palace and they hose the blood out. And the blood runs out on the ground and the dogs come and lick it. Half the prophecy is fulfilled. So must have, Elijah must have said to himself, okay, okay. See your hand there. But Jezebel is still alive. Jezebel's son becomes the, there is a king who reigns briefly and then her son becomes the king. Her, she's the queen mother. She's still a celebrity. She didn't want, she didn't like her husband that much anyway. Ahab's gone. He's out of her life. Now she's, she's the big deal. She's the queen mother. Her son is the king. Jezebel's in power, position, prosperity, wealth. Don't you know that Elijah said to himself, Lord, yes, I see your prophecy fulfilled with Ahab. What, what about this witch here? What about her? I'm going to tell you something. A lot of people don't realize this. Jezebel outlived Elijah. Elijah doesn't die. He is taken up in a whirlwind to heaven. But he's gone. His life is over. When Elijah, when, when Jezebel got word of that, it doesn't tell us in the Bible, but I know, don't you? Because we know human nature. They said, I guess you heard, Elijah's gone. Oh, he's gone. He died. Well, not exactly dead. He's just gone. And Jezebel said they can tell it any way they want to. They can spin it any way they want to. He's dead and gone. And his prophecy about me didn't happen. I outlived him. I outlived him. I knew he was a liar and a fraud. He's dead and gone, and I'm still the queen. Do I live in this palace? Am I wealthy? Is my son the king? He's dead and gone. So round three, the third fight, the thriller in Israel, seems to go to Jezebel. I don't know what encounters in heaven look like. I don't, we'll, we won't know till we get there. I often wonder if we'll get to heaven and say, Lord, I... This is great. Wow, wow, wow. But I, hey, could I ask you something? Am I, do you ever think of that? That you'll walk in the door and say this? Thank you. Thank God. I'm so glad to be here. Did you not once tell me? <laughs> I, I wonder if Elijah didn't say, Lord, this is great. This is wonderful. And you fulfill that prophecy about Ahab, those dogs licking his blood and everything. <laughs> See, I was just wondering about like Jezebel. You know what the Lord said? It's not over. I didn't give you a date. I didn't give you the calendar. I didn't give you the time frame. I just told you what happened. I just told you what happened. Ahab is dead. The dogs have licked his blood. Jezebel's son is the king. Elijah's in heaven. It looks like Elijah lost, but Elijah has trained an assistant. His name is Elisha. 
Elisha has trained an assistant. And Elisha says to his assistant, take this oil that I'm going to give you and go and anoint a man named Jehu as the next king. Pull him aside, take him in private, pour the oil in his head, anoint him and tell him you're the new king and come back to me. So they do that. That man, Jehu, his friends say, what that guy want? And he says, well, it's the strangest thing. He anointed me with oil and told me I was the new king. They said, well, if you're the new king, let's do it. Let's rock and roll. And Jehu kills Jeroboam. And he rides back into the palace. And Jezebel is sitting up in the window. And she accuses him of being a Simri. Of, uh, um, uh, it's, it's like... Um, Benedict Arnold. So she's sitting up in the window of the palace and she says, you're a Benedict Arnold. Betray your country. Kill your master. You slew the real king. How long do you think you'll live? She says. How long do you think you'll live? That's in, one, in two Kings chapter nine. She says, you, you won't live long. God will curse you for killing your master. And Ahab, uh, and Jehu looks up there and he says, is anybody else up there? And three eunuchs, three servants appear. He says, okay, I'm Jehu. I'm the new king and I'm going to kill the people that are opposed to me. If you're on my side, throw her down. And they grab her and throw her out the window. And the Bible is so graphic. I don't want to. It says when she hits the pavement, it says her blood spatters the walls and her blood splashes on his horse and frightens the horse and the horse tramples her. And the next verse is remarkable. It says, and Jehu went inside and had dinner. <laughs> it's a Jehu. Let me tell you something. Jehu was not a guy to mess with. So he's in there having supper and it says, he said, okay, okay. She was a princess. She was the mother of a king, the wife of a king and the daughter of a king. We should bury her. Go outside and bury her. But the dogs have come and eaten everything but her hands and her skull. Now listen to this. It's an interesting thing. The goddess, the Sidonian goddess, Anna, that she served and worshipped, is pictured always with a necklace of her victims' skulls and hands. So God says, you serve a goddess that wears a necklace of skulls and hands, that's all that's going to be left of you. So I, we don't know this, but I wonder if in heaven, God didn't turn to Elijah and say, you see, <laughs> so what do we, what do we say to these things? What's the, what's the end of this? Sometimes you will receive a prophecy is symbolic of, of a miracle. Sometimes you will see, receive a clear manifest witness of the present victory of God right before your eyes. Rejoice in it. 
Sometimes you'll have fire on the mountain. Rejoice in it. Sometimes you will feel lost and lonely and waiting on God and feeling like all that miracle power has disappeared. Sometimes you will need to be rebuilt, restored, refreshed, refaithed. But this one thing you can count on. If God has told you the promise, it will be yours. It may not be in the time that you wanted. It may not be in the way that you thought, but God is not a liar. So, so God spoke to Elijah. This would happen, but it didn't happen through Elijah. It happened through Elisha. In fact, it didn't actually happen through Elisha. It happened through Elisha's servant, whose name we don't even know, who anointed Jehu. It didn't actually happen through him. It happened through Jehu. So here's what the question I want to leave you with. If God spoke to you and said, I'm going to give you what you pray for. I'm going to give you the miraculous answer that you pray for. And it'll be yours. But it's not going to happen in your lifetime. It's not going to happen in your eyesight. It's not going to come the way you think, and it's not going to come on the time frame. You don't get to set the time frame. What if God should appear to you in your house tonight and say, I will allow you to be used of me to win a million people to Christ. You say, Lord, that's wonderful. Thank you. When do we start? And he says, no, see, I said through you. But you're going to win somebody to Jesus who's going to win somebody to Jesus who's going to win another person to Jesus and 75 years from now, three generations later, that person is going to win a million people to Jesus. It just doesn't sound fun that way, does it? What I'm saying to you is that God sometimes gives you that fire burst on the mountain. The anointing, the miracle right there in your hands. When it comes, thank him. There are times when your humanity will rise up and you'll be all filled with self-pity and whining and moaning before God. Wait, I say, wait on the Lord. There'll be times when he rebuilds you and calls you back in. Okay, you won the first fight. Okay, the second fight was a draw. Now comes the thriller in Israel. Now I'm going to show you my victory. My way, my time. Wait, I say, wait on the Lord. Let every man be a liar, but let God be true. Amen. Go on and magnify the Lord in the house. Let's praise him tonight. You've been listening to The Leader's Notebook with Dr. Mark Rutland. Be sure to subscribe, rate, and review today's podcast. You can follow Dr. Rutland on Twitter at Dr. Mark Rutland or visit his website, drmarkrutland.com. Join us next week for another episode of The Leader's Notebook.